Hey guys, welcome to episode 105 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well. Like I mentioned in our last episode, this is the most glorious time of the year for me. I have three days left of school. Three days and counting. Three days. I'm so excited. I know. I've never seen you so excited before. (laughs) I've never needed an end to a school year more than I have this year. It's been so crazy with my students being, you know, half at home, half in the classroom. It's just, it's been a trying year to say the very least. But before we get started, um, I do want to thank those of you that have left reviews in the past two weeks. What we do is when we're eating dinner, we sometimes read the podcast reviews. It's always like a nice thing to do. And some of like the recent ones have been so incredible and they're just so amazing. No, you're right. But did you say sometimes you mean every time, right? Every time. (laughs) I think we check just about every single night. Yes, we do. But then I like, you know, over dinner, we just talk about it. Sometimes cry, sometimes get excited. (laughs) Or just sit there and uh, just be, I guess you could call it, reflect. And sometimes I'm just kind of puzzled, but 90% of the time I am happy. Yes. So we just want to say that we appreciate you so much. And if you haven't, please do so. Leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, because it really helps us in the charts. And, you know, even though we've been around for a while, it's hard to get onto those charts whether it's like itunes or you know just like well-known true crime podcasts it's hard because well there's just so many podcasts out there and true crime specifically yeah i mean it's a pretty big genre so i mean whatever you can do for us would uh, always you know be greatly appreciated yes okay so are you ready to get started yeah let's do it so this is episode 105 and that's our our wedding date it is so i figured that i would do something special a honeymoon Oh, okay. Yes. And we've been asked if we ever went on our honeymoon, but we ended up not being able to. We had it planned for the summer after our wedding, but that was, you know, this past summer with the whole COVID thing. So we weren't able to go. Instead, we bought a house. So we did that instead of the honeymoon. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Yes. Sometimes you got to choose. Yeah. So this will be... You know, our honeymoon, I guess. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) So in today's case, we examine the honeymoon that a young Belgian couple took on a Mediterranean island. But what is supposed to be the happiest time in their life turns into tragedy. When the bride needs to bring her new husband home in a coffin. The death that occurred on that trip led to an international manhunt and the uncovering of a diabolical scheme that seemed more fit for a movie than it did the real world. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In 1994, 31-year-old Mark Van Beers had everything he wanted. He had a wonderful, large family that was very close. He was smart and had a wonderful job. He was an accountant, and a very good one. He had actually been promoted several times in his years with the company that he worked at. He was so successful, in fact, that he was able to purchase a beautiful home for himself. 
But now that he was in his 30s, he felt like he was missing something. A wife and family. But Mark was very shy, and he was really busy in his accounting job, so dating was something that was really hard for him. And that's why he chose to use a matchmaking service. So remember, this is 1994, so there are no dating apps. He had to actually go to a service, film a video of himself, have his picture taken, and kind of fill out a survey, the old school matchmaking way. I feel like that's so embarrassing and awkward, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like, it's, so it's kind of like uh, speed dating, probably, right? Like, a kind of like that's like one form of it, right? Well, it's like speed dating, but without having to awkwardly sit in front of that person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just find that whole thing odd. I, I, hey, listen, if I didn't wind up with you and we didn't meet each other and we have this great life with one another, I don't know if I can do the whole like online dating app thing. I don't know. I don't think I could date in this current atmosphere no, either. <laughs> definitely not. I think, though, that's the way that everything is now is that, you know, that's just how people meet. No, it's true. I, I, it's I very actually, interesting. It is. It is. Because I think when we were growing up, like, well, obviously we were really young during this time period, but it was kind of like looked down upon to join a matchmaking service. Like, oh, what's wrong with you? I think it's really just the apps. Apps made it popular and acceptable. Yeah. So. Well, and, you know, sometimes, you know, the younger kids, the younger kids. Oh, my God. I we're old now. <laughs> we're old now. They use it for, you know, not just dating, but quick connections. Yeah, we'll call it that. <laughs> so Mark wanted to be connected with someone who was around his age and was really serious about getting married and starting a family. So he made it really clear that his intentions were serious and he only wanted to meet a woman who also wanted to get married and not casually date. So he would have not been on Tinder. No. No. So the first woman that he was matched with was a 24-year-old named Aurora Martin. He was so nervous for his first date. Meeting women was not something he was ever comfortable with. He had seen a picture of his date and watched her video and she was gorgeous. He was a little self-conscious because, you know, he had always been designated as the nerdy intellectual type. So he just really wanted her to like him. But when Aurora got there, everything was perfect. They hit it off right away and had so much to talk about. Aurora had told him that she came from a big family as well, and she wanted to have one herself. Sadly, both of her parents had passed away but they had left her and her siblings with a considerable amount of wealth. Because of this, she was able to attend Eastberg University. And this is a very well-known university in Belgium. Um, it's part of like Southern Belgium University. And it was something that Mark was really impressed by. Aurora told Mark that also because of her wealth, and she was able to pursue the career that she liked, which was acting. So it was basically her saying, I come from a very big, wealthy, educated family. I knew my parents would have wanted me to go to college, so I did. But I am still pursuing my career of acting while living on, you know, the money that my parents left for me. So it must have been a considerable amount of wealth. Yeah, like uh, kind of like, a, like a, maybe a trust fund kind of thing. Yes. And if she came from a big family and all the siblings, you know, were afforded that lifestyle, it must have been a lot. Yeah, that's a good point. 
So after a few months of dating, Mark knew that this was the woman that he wanted to spend his life with. Everything was perfect. So he asked her to marry him. She said yes and was just so excited to start her life with him. The wedding was set for six months after their engagement. But because Mark and Aurora both had big families, the wedding planning had been a bit stressful. Accommodating everyone's wants and needs is difficult when there are just, you know, so many people involved. Yeah, I mean, it is. We got lucky. But yeah, we had, a, we had a smaller wedding, so it was easier to plan. But, but not everybody has that. Sometimes no. it can be in the hundreds. Yeah. So Mark was really just so enamored by Aurora. She was beautiful, intelligent, and her lifestyle was kind of glamorous. This is something that Mark wasn't really used to. So that's why I think this relationship went as quickly as it did. Plus, you know, 1994, people did tend to get married and have children younger than they do now. And he is about to be 32 years old. So I think he did kind of want to start that process quicker. Yeah, definitely. And his parents fell in love with Aurora. They got along very well. And, you know, they were really upset that this young girl had lost her parents. So what they did was kind of take her in as their own. I think that that speaks to like the kind of family they were. That's really nice. Yeah. So after their beautiful day in May of 1995, the couple left for their honeymoon. They chose to go to Corsica and had been planning the trip for as long as they had been planning the wedding. Now, Corsica is just breathtaking. It's really a phenomenal choice for a honeymoon. It's the fourth largest island on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's a region of France that's located southeast of the French mainland. But it really is the closest landmass to Corsica is the Italian island of Sardinia. And, you know, like, geographically speaking i would just tell my students that the island is located west of the boot of italy <laughs> i like that, that you did i like that you did that that's how they always know where everything is <laughs> though i will say i didn't even know I, this is going to be a shock to <laughs> to everybody i don't even know these places uh, do i need a uh, geography lesson yeah you do need I, a geography oh, maybe lesson. i just need to be more cultured i don't know i'm trying i'm gonna give you a quick history lesson now now or after show not, well, I mean, I could do both. Okay. Up to you. We'll do after show. Well, no, I have it written. Oh, here. then never mind. Um, <laughs> should I just skip it? No, absolutely not. Okay. So this island first belonged to the Republic of Genoa, which is a medieval empire. And it that empire mainly comprised of various islands and coastlands around the Mediterranean and Black Sea. But there had been a rebellion on the island in the 1750s. And because the waning empire didn't have the military power to quell the rebels, they asked for help from the French. So the king of France at the time was Louis XV. He was um, the very neglected son of Louis XIV, who was known as the Sun King, you know, the builder of Versailles. And he was the father of Louis XVI, the last king of France who was executed during the French Revolution. So he was kind of like the guy in the middle. But the one thing that Louis XV was the most known for was his involving the French army in various and very expensive military affairs that really contributed to France's debt during the 1700s, which will end up being one of the um, five 
massive causes of the French Revolution, which is my favorite thing to teach about. But he really needed the money for France because of their massive debt in stopping the rebellion because the Republic of Genoa was supposed to pay them for the use of their army. But because Genoa was on the verge of collapse, it would dissipate 24 years later. They ended up just giving the island to France in 1755. Wow. Yes. And that is um, the island's claim to fame is that in that very same year, it's where Napoleon Bonaparte was born. That's pretty cool. Yes. That's awesome. Now, two thirds of this island is made up of a chain of mountains. And the other third in 1995 was populated by just over a quarter million people. And it is beautiful. Like still even today, it's a very like low key romantic spot. Um, A lot of uh, Europeans do go there for their honeymoons. We may have to go visit one day. Oh, yeah. One day. We have a lot of places on our list. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Probably will go nowhere. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe one place. So they spent their time in their room, on the beach, and enjoying the culture of the island. They were having the time of their lives. And one night, after a really long day of lounging at the pool, going to dinner, and spending time in their hotel room, the couple decided that they they wanted to go out at night and go for a bit of a night drive along the cliffs of the Corsican coast. Seems a little dangerous. Does seem a little dangerous. Something that you and I definitely wouldn't do. Well, I mean, I would do in the daytime. And I I would have to drive, not you. What? Come on, my driving's great. You drive a little too fast for me. I'm sorry. And we're going around cliffs. Pedal to the metal. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the thing is, is that these, like, high cliffs that Corsica has, of course, because they have so many mountains, they are really windy and dangerous and they have really small guardrails or no guardrails at all. So I would say that this drive is treacherous in the daytime and death defying at night, especially if you're not familiar with the the lay of the land like a local would be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would imagine that. So the couple also had a lot to drink that night. So that wasn't going to help with them on this nighttime drive. Well, yeah. It does sound like a recipe for disaster. (laughs) It doesn't get any worse than that, really. So later on in the night, a pair of American tourists were driving along the same winding roads as the newlyweds had been. This is around midnight. They had spent the entire day and night at the beaches, so they were exhausted while driving back to their hotel. When they rounded a turn, they just barely missed a woman who had run out into the middle of the road. She had blood and dirt all over her, and she was screaming. The two girls stopped their car and ran to her side. They asked her what happened, but she wouldn't stop screaming and crying long enough to tell them what was really going on. One of the girls stayed with the woman while the other drove to the nearest phone to call for help. While she was waiting for help to arrive, she heard the woman say a few words. Something about a car accident. When the paramedics and police arrived, the woman was still in hysterics. 
She was sobbing so hard she could barely catch her breath. So they chose to give her a shot of Valium to calm her down so they could speak with her. And once the drug took effect, she relaxed and was able to talk about what had happened. The woman that was given the shot of Valium was Aurora Martin, and her husband, Mark Van Beers, was nowhere to be found. Once she finally calmed down, she told the police that she and her husband had gotten into a bad accident. He had gone over the cliff, and she thought he was dead. Aurora was bruised and scratched, but mainly unharmed. She was given an IV and taken to the hospital. Later on in the night, she was able to explain more as to what happened that night. Once she was brought to the hospital, she was able to give the full story. She said they had been driving on the winding roads at night, and a dog ran out into the middle of the street, and Mark had to swerve to avoid it. But when he did that, the car went over the cliff. For a second, they teetered, and he yelled at her to jump out. As she began to jump, the car went over. It tumbled, and she was thrown from the convertible. But Mark had gone down with the car. I mean, that's pretty crazy for that to happen. That's really sad. That's really sad. And the reason why she explained that she was able to like get out of the car was because she actually didn't have her seatbelt on when this took place. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, it's made for safety, but hey, it saved my life that I didn't have it on. I know, right? But it's just so, like, she had to watch her husband plummet 750 feet. So it was a devastating story, and on their honeymoon, that detail just made everything all the more tragic. It was supposed to be the time that they're celebrating their love together, and there's a death. So the police on the island contacted the French and Belgian authorities to make them aware of the crash. Um, the island of Corsica kind of has a lot of autonomy when it comes to um, their policing and their governmental policies. So they, when big events do happen or something involving tourists, they do contact the French authorities. So the next step of the investigation was to recover the car and body of Mark Van Beers. The car was pulled from the bottom of the cliff and pictures were taken of the body, which was very badly mangled is, is the way that it was explained, of the car itself and the site of the accident. The investigators from the island, after conducting a brief investigation, are going to initially deem the event an accidental death. But they do say that they are going to have um, further investigations take place once the proper authorities get to the island. Once she was treated for all of her minor injuries, Aurora was released from the hospital. Then, the woman who had just entered the airport a few days before with her new husband was leaving with his body in a coffin. They returned to Brussels. Mark's family was waiting for Aurora and the body of their son when she arrived. Mark's family was devastated by the news of his death. They were besides themselves, as was Aurora, upon their meeting again. When it came time to prepare for the burial, the Van Beers family wanted to bury their 32-year-old son in their family plot. However, his wife was very adamant that Mark had told her, in their one year together, that it really was his wish to be cremated when he passed away. 
And this was not something that the family wanted to do. In fact, they had always all talked about, you know, their deaths in the future. And they said that in death, they all wanted to be together as they were in life. So they were all to be buried at the family plot. I mean, that's a very complicated issue. And at this point, it's really just what, you know, what the wife is saying, right? And what the parents are saying. There's no, I mean, obviously he can't speak for himself. Yeah. So this is very, very difficult. Uh, Does that fall, whose responsibility does that fall under to make that choice now? Would it be his wife? Well, legally it would be his wife. But, you know, in this situation, it's it's a little different because... It's his wife of a week and a half. You know what I mean? And they're, it's not like they were together for years and years. So the family felt like, even though legally she was the one responsible for making decisions, they pulled some rank here. Yeah. But it is complicated. If this really was Mark's wishes, his wishes should be honored in his death. Yeah. On a separate note, though, I will say... John's pulling out his bag of flags because this is one right now where I, I got a little red flag. Boom! I'm pinning it. Yes. I'm pinning. I'm gonna pin that because a little odd that she's being so pushy for the cremation. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how her his family felt as well. They thought that she was not only just being kind of disrespectful to them because they have had these conversations with their son, but that her intentions were strange. So. I think you're right about that red flag. Yeah. So because they found this to be so odd, they decided that the best thing that they could do was reach out to the police in Belgium. They felt as if something was wrong here. Aurora was acting strange about the cremation, and they had so many questions regarding the accident that no one, even the person that was there, seemed to be able to answer. Detectives from Belgium also found some things interesting about the car crash that had so quickly been deemed an accident. They had found it strange that Aurora had not been harmed more. Not saying that they wanted her to be harmed more, but you would think even going over a cliff a little bit. So there was kind of like a little bit of a ledge beneath the initial cliff, and that's where she claimed to have been thrown from the vehicle. So not only was she thrown a considerable distance, but she had to climb back up that distance. So they just assumed that she would have more damage to her body. Right. I mean, I don't think that's a crazy thing to say, like for the police to maybe take a look at because the injuries don't match the actual accident. Correct. At least at this present time. You got to understand, too, that police are going to run. Um, I don't want to call it a simulation. I I don't know what it's called, but they're going to run like a quote unquote simulation a to reenactment. see reenactment to see like what kind of damage was suffered to the husband and to the car. And if that doesn't kind of line up with her story and then her injuries on top of that don't match up, then something else happened on the top of that cliff. Well, I am going to tell you right now that no reenactment of this accident ever takes place. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I would say so. Um, the police in Belgium also feel like it's very interesting that there were no skid marks on the road because remember pictures were taken of the accident. So you would think that there would have been 
skid marks of some sort. I mean, if you're avoiding an animal, a person, uh, an object of some sort, you're going to, if you if you are going to swerve, that's great and all, but you're also going to slam on your brakes too. You, you might. Like, that might be your immediate reaction. Um, what Aurora was saying was that he thought he was just going to kind of swerve out of the way, but that he misjudged the amount of space that he had and the car just like immediately went over the cliff, but was stopped, teetered for a second and then fell. So from her story, there was no breaking that took place. Now, if she's telling the truth, that would explain the fact that there was no skid marks because there wasn't a long enough stretch of road for the skid marks to even have been created. I mean, you can make a skid mark about an inch long. If it's like an, I mean, like that's gonna be a soundbite. <laughs> no, like okay, okay. Listen, all we jo- know what you're saying. All joking aside, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm just gonna say we all have driver's licenses, and we all know that if we see an object or something, your, I would say a lot of people's initial reaction is to break, to just stop before the object. Oh yeah. Instead of swerving like a maniac on a cliff. You know what? Actually, actually, in the real world, on a normal road or highway, you would probably maybe swerve slightly and get back into your lane or whatever well, like I that. because I know I have space. Exactly. But if you're on a mountaintop... We live in New Jersey. We have nothing but highways. <laughs> right. But if you're on a mountaintop with, with either small to no guardrails, you're unfamiliar with the road, and it's nighttime, I can tell you right now you're probably not going to want to swerve like that. You would just stop. You would just stop or try to break i mean things crazy things can happen but the fact that there is no skid mark like no break no nothing no indication of that a little bizarre to me right i would also like to have known what the um blood alcohol level was here that's true too because i mean like you know yeah you can have a a first-hand account being in that vehicle but are you conscious for the whole thing were you you obliterated that night what's going on i'm not saying like that she's to blame at all but like i would need to know all the little details to put this together yeah and what is strange is that she was there and she did survive and she's telling so little details i think that's the number one flag and like you said and exactly as how the detectives feel as well the second red flag is her pushing for the cremation of her husband so badly yeah without proper investigations being completed and i know this is her husband so i I don't want to take that away but she does also have to be i mean this just my personal feelings respectful to the fact that 32 years of his life his family has known him and loved him and that's 31 more years than she has. So I feel like they they should be involved in the decisions that are made when it comes to his arrangement. I think it should be a joint effort to, yeah. you know, do the right thing. Right. Because this is not a time for them arguing uh, no. on what to do and what the, what he wanted. And that's really what it became. It became yeah. a really big push. And the family has claimed that they have all had extensive conversations about the family plot, and that's why it had been purchased. So it's not just them assuming or wanting him to be there with them, but they've all said that discussions have been made. Yeah. They're all saying that discussions have been had. 
Right. No, I get it. 100%. That's why sometimes you need a will and testament, right? Yeah. No, it's true. A living will is important. But, well, we don't have one. No, we don't. So. But you probably, you probably should. Everyone should. Yeah, we probably should have one. We just got so life insurance, though, so yeah, Just so there's no confusion, out. you know, like this. Avoid this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so because of this, they told the family that they would be holding an investigation. And these are investigators from Belgium. So they started by talking to Aurora herself. She told them the same story that she had told the investigators in Corsica. There had been a dog in the road. Mark swerved to avoid it. And she said she remembered him yelling for her to jump. But before she could, the car went over. But because the car... When the car went over, she was in the position to begin jumping out of the car. And she said that because of that, Mark had saved her life, she believed. Like, she wouldn't have shifted to that position if he had not yelled at her to jump. So she did feel like he saved her. And when she was telling this story, she again got really upset and began to sob and cry again. I mean, it's very, I mean, look, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I mean, if this is an accident, then I feel in, extremely bad for her, but I'm glad she made it. You yeah. Know? I mean, sometimes our memories of traumatic events are not the best. And I think that that would need to be taken into account. Yeah, absolutely. But when the detectives left the apartment she was staying at, they agreed that they felt like she was not telling the whole truth. Like she was holding back certain details about what took place that night. That's because she's trying to stick to the same story and you're actively trying to do that. So you're not forthcoming by doing that. That's not the best way to be. And they thought, you know, she's acting and this is something she's good at because she's an actor. Yeah, it's true. So when word got out about Mark's death and the fact that it was being investigated, one of his colleagues decided that he wanted to go into the the police station and talk to detectives about something he felt might be relevant to the case. He revealed that because Mark was doing so well at the accounting firm that he worked at, he handled a lot of like big, heavy hitting clients because he was trusted to do so. Before his wedding, Mark had confided in his friend, the guy who was now at the police station, and his colleague, that one of his clients was involved in something shady, was how Mark put it. And this was something that he seemed really nervous about, that his client was kind of asking him to also be involved in something that was shady. And it's kind of like, oh my God, is this an Ozark situation? Oh, nice reference, by the way. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that show. Such a good show. Pretty good. But seriously, is someone asking Mark to launder money for them? It's uh, it's interesting. I'm sure accountants have done that before, you know? Oh, yeah. Cook the books. Yeah. Well, because of this tip, the detectives are going to gain access to his clients' lists and files. Well, because of this tip, the detectives are able to gain access to his clients' lists and files. Well, because of this tip, the detectives are able to gain access to his client list and all of his files on them. They go through all of them, but can't find anything that they thought 
you know, was shady or was something that stood out to them. So they just, it was kind of a dead end, but still potentially a possibility. You know, know, totally. It is a possibility. It could be a slim chance, but it's still a possibility. I think the biggest thing is that unless you have some sort of forensic accountant to go through his entire, like, portfolio or his clientele lists, like you said, and everything, you really won't find that out. That takes a professional, like an actual forensic accountant, you know, to find that stuff out. So if it was just something that the police, like, you know, walk through and goes, hmm, yeah, it seems like everything's good, th- that's not enough. Right. When it, when you're dealing with big-time numbers of clients, you need a forensic accountant to figure that out. No, I completely agree with you because I think that someone that doesn't really have an eye for the business might not recognize that something is shady, as Mark put it. Or if Mark did agree to help them, Mark would have hid the fact that anything was shady. So... I think there, this is still really a strong possibility at this point in the investigation. Yeah. About 10 days following their collection of his records from his job, they also received the official accident report from Corsica. It had been re-examined by the French authorities, and again, it was deemed to be an accident. Now, it was hard, but the investigators had to speak with the Van Beers family again. At this point, you know, really the only thing that they had was that they felt that Aurora's story was off, but there was really nothing that they could hold her on or charge her with or continue to question her about. I mean, she was sticking to her same consistent story. And, you know, even if something was shady with one of Mark's clients, he would have had to been so deep involved in any kind of scheme for them this client, whoever they could have been to hire someone to murder him while honeymooning in Corsica. So it just did seem a little outlandish. So they said, listen, it's, it's been investigated twice. It's been deemed an accident. So at this point, there's nothing they can do. And that's a hard thing to tell a grieving family trying to make sense of the fact that they just celebrated you know, their son, their nephew, their brother's wedding. And then now they're never going to see him again. Yeah, no, that's true. And I'm actually, I mean, at this point, what else can the police really do here? I guess the only way we would know. With the accounting? Yeah, the, with the accounting also is you got to think of the time period. It's 1994, uh, 1995, unless someone literally tailed him and followed him from his, like them leaving. That would be the only way. Because how, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's This is 1995. Uh, There's no uh, GPS tracking satellite. Right. Like, you know, it's a different time period. We have to remember that. Right. Someone would have to have been totally invested and followed him from the airport to the hotel and had been waiting outside the hotel and just by chance he went out that night. That was kind of like a sporadic moment of the couple. Let's right. go for a romantic night drive. Right. So like that would be the only way if he was tailed the whole time. Okay. Interesting. Well, as the Van Beers family and Aurora Martin tried to move on with their lives after this tragedy, a chance encounter at a doctor's office is going to stir everything back up again. Okay. So Mark's uncle was in the waiting room of his doctor's office when he picked up a magazine and started flipping through. 
he came upon a very interesting story. It was a story from Germany that immediately caught his attention. A young married couple got into a car accident where their car fell into a canal. The wife had died in the crash, but the husband was able to break out of the back window of the car and swim to safety. He said that he had been unable to save his wife because her seatbelt wouldn't undo. This accident had taken place three years prior to the accident that Aurora and Mark had. And the surviving spouse, Peter Schmidt, he lived in Belgium now. Okay. So I, that's, I mean, initially you're kind of just like, okay, that story just sounds really similar, but kind of the opposite to what took place with Aurora and Mark. But when Mark's, I think Mark's family was just really hypersensitive because they were such a big, close family and anything that would kind of spark back an investigation was something that they wanted to bring attention to. Yeah, totally. I understand what you're saying. I mean, that's what everyone hopes for because you want to get the, the truth. Yeah, especially when you feel like they're, the whole story about how your loved one had died isn't being told. I mean, that's how anyone would feel. So the Van Beers family brought the story to the detectives that had been working on the case. And, you know, the detectives actually, I have to say, they were very sensitive to what this family was going through. And I think that has to do with the fact that, too, they felt like, you know, there should be more answers than there really was. And they assured the family that they would, you know, look into it. They found that the man's name was Peter Schmidt and his wife at the time was Ursula Duchamps. She had died at the age of 22 in that car crash. And while he worked as a military driver, she was a college student. Months after meeting, four months to be exact, the couple got married. Detectives could not ignore all of the similarities, so they tried to find Peter Schmidt and relatives of Ursula. The first person to get back to them was Ursula's sister. She had told them that her sister had met Peter at a club. He had been handsome and so very charming. Her sister fell for him instantly. However, as soon as they married, his behavior changed. He became possessive and controlling of her. And this caused a lot of tension between the couple. And, of course, Peter and Ursula's family. Her sister said that the worst it ever got was one day when her sister was doing laundry. And when she was putting away Peter's clothes, she found he had a lot of cash in his dresser drawer. When she asked him about it, he went berserk. He got very defensive about it and flew off the handle, throwing things in their apartment. At one point, she actually had to lock herself in the bathroom to hide from him. The next morning, she had called her sister and told her that she believed that Peter was involved in something illegal. And she was right, because about a week later, the police visited her apartment when Peter was not home. They questioned her and told her that they suspected that her husband was involved in a car insurance scam. Knowing what he was doing was wrong, and knowing that she had to leave him because of his changing behavior, his possessiveness, and his violence, Ursula told the police about the cash that she had found in the apartment. 
and she agreed that she was willing to testify about it. And about a month later, she gave a deposition against her husband, Peter. And two days after that deposition was when the car accident took place. That she was... Killed. Killed. Yes. Where he was able to escape the car, but she wasn't. Okay. I mean, that's a little odd. That's doesn't make sense. Yeah, I would say that's not really a coincidence. (laughs) No. Uh, The investigators had no luck in getting in touch with Peter Schmidt. In fact, they couldn't find him at all. So they asked Ursula's sister what Peter's version of events had been when it came to the accident. She stated that he said that he was teaching Ursula how to drive because she didn't have her driver's license. And on the way home, he had control of the car again. He was speeding, trying to read a map, and talking to her all at the same time. Um, He had just lost control of the car and drove into the canal. It had been a mistake, an accident. And just like the article said, he was able to break out of the back window, but he couldn't get to her. Now, I think this is such a bizarre story, and this is really why an investigation was had and a trial was had over this car accident, because it seems really odd that this man with this massive temper would be giving Ursula driving lessons two days after she testified against him. I mean, none of it makes sense. Um, I would also like to add, let's see if there's a connection between... Okay, let me start with this. If he already has been... He's already getting in trouble for... Or possibly getting in trouble for car insurance, like scheming, you know, scams. What's going on in my head right now is, okay, if he's going that far and he got married so fast... I want to know if he took out a life insurance policy on his newly uh, new new wife that he just had. Okay. Because if that happens, and then she dies two days later, right uh, uh, from the deposition, mm-hmm. he's making out pretty good, isn't he? I would say he is. So, hit it, hit <laughs> K, hit it K. Okay. What, what we well, got? I think first, I just want to talk about how I feel this case is so very different from the Mark Van Beers case. There's a clear motive here. I mean, even if we put the whole like like possible life assurance thing aside, Ursula's leaving Peter. Um, he's clearly possessive, so this is something that's going to bother him. And she testified against him, so the motive could be revenge. And because this was so questionable and there was motive there, there was a trial to determine if Peter was responsible for Ursula's death. And during the trial, the defense stated that they did reenact this car crash. And the same thing happened as Peter described. It would have been possible for him to get out because his seatbelt didn't malfunction. But Ursula's seatbelt had malfunctioned. And that was why she died versus him being at fault for it. But of course, the prosecution in this matter is going to say like, no, this is a pretty ironclad case her seatbelt malfunction wouldn't have mattered if he did not drive the car into a canal that that's what led to her death was her drowning so it was pretty clear that 
Peter Schmidt was the one who was at fault for Ursula's death. And he knew that he was going to be convicted of it. So he ended up making a plea deal. And he pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. And he was only sentenced to three years of probation. Why so little? It's it's just the sentence he got. It was a plea deal. Oh, okay. It's, uh, I think you'll be shocked by other things, too. Okay. Don't worry. They were just getting started with these sentences. Oh, my God. Okay. And somehow, somehow, even though he pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter of her death, Peter was able to collect an $800,000 insurance policy. Boom. And I'm right. You are. (laughs) I knew it. Because people like that, people who like try to scheme uh, insurances and stuff, you don't stop with cars. You go into killing people now to gain money. It's an escalation. Just like actual, like when we talk about murders and stuff, it's an escalation of serial killers. It's the same thing here. When it comes to scams. It starts out little petty crimes, little thefts here and there, and then you escalate. Wow. So? You're o- you're like an expert. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so the investigators still felt like there was a connection between the two cases. So they worked to track down the people that knew Aurora. They were thinking, okay, maybe there is a connection that way. Like, are Peter and Aurora connected somehow? That's what they were trying to figure out because the two seem to have done the same thing. Like a syndicate? Yeah. Like, could you imagine? If there was like (laughs) insurance syndicate, just kill people and take the money. That's pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, weirder things have happened. I mean, and you know what? It's like, um, I don't want to say foolproof, but like, no one can really say anything. If I was to get married to you. Well, we did. Well, uh, in Vegas. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then Change I. Change of venue. Yeah. And I got a life insurance policy. And then two weeks later, you know, I somehow fall into a canal and die. Or, and I drown. You get my money, regardless if you're married to me for a day or 25 years. Correct. So well, even if you're not, even if you're just the holder of the policy. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that can be contested sometimes, but I mean, obviously it didn't matter here. He got $800,000. Yeah, I know. And the laws are a little bit different because this is happening in Belgium, not the United States. True. But uh, this is what police are trying to say. What are the connections here? So eventually the detectives were able to get in contact with an old friend of Aurora's from high school. What she had to say was very interesting. She said that Aurora had hit the jackpot marrying that rich guy. And they found this statement odd because from what they knew, Aurora had come from a wealthy family. Her former friend confirmed that that was not the truth. In fact, Aurora came from a very poor family that was known to be very abusive as well. The two girls had been on the party scene together. Um, They'd done drugs, they were into drinking, and they had dropped out of high school at the same time. Aurora had never gone to college. Instead, she worked as an escort after she dropped out of high school. The woman claimed that she didn't know what Aurora was up to or when she stopped escorting or if she ever did stop because they, the two women had lost touch. This is crazy. So 
this is crazy because this is like the first like major catfish like you know yeah. this is somebody that is lying about who they are um so this kind of poses a lot of questions right now this is very so this is getting really good okay catfishing oh. before the internet before the internet okay this is good thanks i try um, so here we have a motive now. Not only had Aurora been lying about who she was, but now she had a motive to marry Mark. And if they found out that she had an insurance policy, she may have also had motive to kill. Yeah, because that's what's lacking um, in, in her case. Yes. And his death is that there is no motive for his death for her to do mm-hmm. it. I mean, correct. So. The investigators put out a request to see if there were any policies that had been taken out on Mark Van Beer's life. And while they waited for that information, they chose to pay Aurora Martin a visit. The visit that they had with her was very unlike the first time when she sat with them for a long time. She explained her relationship with Mark, their honeymoon, what happened that night, and she was very upset and distraught. Well, now she was like kind of pushing them out the door the whole time. She was jittery. She just wanted them out. And she was really saying as little as possible, like being short with all of her answers. You know, maybe she just is starting to feel the pressure now. Yeah. And she had said, she explains it away by saying like, oh, I just have an audition to get to. But the detective's, again thought that you know she was kind of faking this yeah she's not an actor you lied about that too probably no well no she is an actress um that is the truth i have found that out okay so she actually is an actress yeah i mean not like anything like she doesn't have an imdb so she's like semi kind of pretending yeah like she might be like background girl number three like she's an aspiring aspiring actress okay it's a hard place to be yes yes so they asked her again about her family and her education and she stuck to the same story she lied right to their face again about her parents passing away her family being wealthy and again she said she went to a prestigious university and they said in the way that she explained all of that to them was the same way she explained her relationship to Mark. So it is very possible that this girl has been lying about every single thing. And then finally, they asked her if she knew a man named Peter Schmidt. She said that she knew a lot of Peters, but she didn't know a Peter Schmidt. So that was her ending. Now. It could have been that she was just embarrassed to tell Mark and the detectives about her life. Maybe she did suffer from abuse. Maybe she was embarrassed that she grew up poor or that she had a past as an escort. I mean, it, she could have felt shame from that. that. That all could have been a possibility. But all of that kind of goes out the window when the next day the investigators find out that Aurora Martin had seven life insurance policies on her husband. Excuse me? Seven life insurance policies. Seven? Seven. Okay, okay. Do you have a total here? What's the total? Do you know? Um, I, well, it's so disappointing because I don't have a total. Okay, it's okay. It's, it's still, you know what? It's probably a lot. Still, seven life insurance a policies. A lot, yeah. I'm sure it's a lot of money. And... 
now they just totally know that she's lying about everything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. What the hell? So they have all the policies out in front of them and they analyze each one. And the first six policies were the same, kind of cut and dry, signed by Aurora Martin, signed by Mark Van Beers. It all looks like copacetic. It all looks good. But the seventh life insurance policy was a little different, both in its policy and its signatures. So the policy states that if there were to be an accident, an accidental death, the policy amount would double. Oh, so there were little stipulations within... Just this seventh policy. Okay. And on top of that, the signature, Mark Van Beer's signature, did not match the first six policies. Ooh. So it was forged. Okay. But I do have to say this, and this is just a PSA from the true crime couple. If your wife asks you to sign six insurance policies... You might want to rethink that wedding day. (laughs) Right? It's true. It's true. But, like, I mean, the flip side to that is, I mean, obviously, I think we're getting to something bigger here. But the flip side is, I mean, how many times do I ask you to, like, sign my name on something? Never. I do ask you, but what do you do? I don't do it. Right. But I say, I'm a nervous person exactly. and I follow the rules. Exactly. Because you're, you, that's your a Libra. That's just what you do. I also could never replicate your signature. I Absolutely don't even know not. what that thing is. Hey, listen, I'm a guy. I, I think I speak for all men. We just like to scribble. Yeah. We'll do like, you know, like J and then, you know, scribble, may- scribble, scribble, line, R, you know, this, boom, boom, boom. Just, oh, okay, good. That that's is, it. Just so you guys know, that's a... Description of what John's signature looks like. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. I just think that the fact that there are seven policies, even just the six, like let's, uh, Mark is aware of six life insurance policies. That's excessive when this couple has only been together for one year and they don't own anything together. They don't own a vehicle. They don't own a home. They don't have children. So it is very strange. And from even from the perspective of, okay, this woman wants to, if anything happens to me, just continue to lead a life of just trying to be an actress and not really wanting to work or do anything. That's, that's what it seems like the motive would be if, if not murder. I mean, it's still a weird thing. I mean, I agree. I, I, I guess there are there are people out there though that do do this. Like, I, I'm meaning like they'll just get a lot of policies, you know, because yes. even the some guys would be like, "Listen, I want to be able to take care of my family uh, in case uh, my unfortunate death." Um, you know, right? I don't know. There, there are people that way, and that's fine. But this, you're right. This is weird. This is weird to happen in such a short time. Like, we've been together for a long time, and I wouldn't even think about doing that yet. Like, right. it's... It, so, to be married for, you know, not... I don't even know at this point. Days. It, days? Then it's weird to me. And how and long do they know each other? For one year. Yeah. I'm... Too too soon. Too yeah. soon. And all the policies, I think, together made up one large lump sum. So... Right. I guess what... It is, is it's insurance policies for the insurance policies. If one doesn't pan out, we've got six others. Well, yeah. I mean, it's could, you know, I don't know how it is. And it's actually a good question. Um, maybe I just am dumb and don't know, but 
are, are all life insurance policies the same country to country? No, I think that there's definitely different rules that exist within other countries, but also within the different companies That's that are too. offering the policy. Itself. Like, you know, like we have term life and like yeah. all those like ter- like actual terms that they use. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Very Seems weird, though. So after receiving this information, the investigators went to the family with what they had found. And they asked for permission to exhume Mark's body so they could perform an autopsy. And at that point, the Van Beers family was very happy that they fought not to have Mark cremated. And the family agreed. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you what was the eventual turnout. So now we know. So, okay, cool. The family got what they wanted. Yep. So at that point, Mark had been dead for over a year. However, a medical examiner was able to determine that at the time of the car accident, Mark had already been dead. What? All of his injuries that he suffered during the wreck had minimal bleeding, swelling, or bruising. All of those are signs that his heart had not been pumping blood when the injuries were sustained. However, that was not the same for the injuries that he had on his head. There, there was significant bleeding, swelling, and bruising. So basically, the report from the medical examiner was that Mark Van Beers had been beaten over the head, and that had been the cause of death, blunt force trauma. The object that was used was the size of a baseball bat. He had been in a brutal car accident, but after his death. This was a murder. Oh my God. That is insane. Okay. I'm sure it doesn't end here. No, it doesn't end okay. there. But like, why didn't they just do just do the autopsy? It was a, an investigated death. The autopsy should have been done. Yeah, I don't know what was kind of like glazed over here, but I'm glad they didn't cremate his body. Yeah, this would have never been found out. Nope. Well, it would have all been circumstantial evidence. And circumstantial evidence is evidence, but not as good as finding out from a medical examiner that he was dead before the car crash. That is insane. It's pivotal. So looking at what happened, it was clear that Aurora could not have done this herself. So who helped her? Oh, my God. Okay. Are we going to talk about Schmitty? Yeah. But first, hold on. Let me keep going. Okay. But oh that's their God. first thing is like, is Peter Schmidt involved in this? Or does she have a, another lover? Or like, what's going on? you like multiple people. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Did she hire someone? Yes. Oh, yeah. Because she can pay them now. She can. She's got a lot of money. She can pay them now. A warrant was issued for her arrest, and the investigators went to her apartment to arrest her. However, when they got there, another woman opened the door. She said that she'd been renting the apartment for a week, and that she didn't know the previous occupant of the apartment, but she did leave in a hurry. Oh, oh God, this is crazy. So now the police still have no idea where Peter Schmidt is. And Aurora Martin has just disappeared. And upon some digging, the police were able to make a connection, albeit a very small one, 
between Peter Schmidt and Aurora Martin. The two had taken a rock climbing class together about a year before she had met Mark. So the investigators really did believe that there was a connection between these two. And now they had proof. It was shaky proof, but they had proof. So they go public with this information and they ask for help from the media. So now, of course, the media runs with this and makes them out to be these like killer lovers on the loose. And they're nicknamed the Diabolical Lovers. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, this is a movie plot. It is. It actually is. So because Peter was initially from Germany, Interpol got involved. The pair could be anywhere. Then, because of the involvement of Interpol, this pulls the attention of the FBI. So FBI, Interpol, on these two. Both agencies receive a lot of tips, but one came into the FBI in October of 1997 that was the most promising. The tip was that the couple was living in Miami. So the U.S. Marshals were sent to Florida to track them down. When the Marshals start to question people in Miami, it is very obvious that Peter and Aurora were not laying low. They spent lavishly and were pretty big on the South Beach social scene because, you know, their accents were so prevalent. So everyone really did remember them. I mean, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. (laughs) So Peter sold cars and yachts to make money, but they were both smart enough to not leave a paper trail anywhere. They rented and paid for everything with cash. Okay. They figured that if the couple themselves had a yacht, they would eventually have to dock this yacht. So they figured that marinas would be a good, you know, place to stake out to like, kind of find this couple. the area. Yeah. So they speak to people that own the various marinas in South Beach, and they do talk to one man who did say he knew the couple. He knew that they lived in a condo in one of the high rises on Collins Ave, which is like famous. And they owned a yacht. It was called, how sick is this, to life. Really? Like the cheers, like to life. Yeah, to life. After they killed two people. Yep. Immediately, their high rise was rushed by the FBI. But when they got to their apartment, it was completely empty how do they know to like to leave at the right time well because they knew because they were like big on the social scene so people started talking about oh people are asking about you oh my god so they found out after the couple left miami we knew that they they went to bimini which is in the bahamas and they stayed there for six weeks until they ran out of money They were then forced to return to Miami to liquidate their assets so they had more cash to to make a second run for it with. Word had gotten back to the FBI that the couple had returned because everyone they talked to was like, oh, we'll tell you if they come back. And they did. So they knew that they were on their boat. So again, they start staking out various marinas. One morning, the boat to life pulled up to the dock 
Okay. Excited, the agents from the FBI rushed the boat. But the man sitting on the boat reading the newspaper was not Peter Schmidt. Shocked, the man almost had a heart attack. He invited the agents onto his boat and explained he knew who Peter Schmidt was. He had bought this boat from him. The boat itself was worth a quarter of a million dollars, but he bought it from Peter for 175000 a steal. However, the man was only able to, at the time, get his hand on $125,000 in cash. Do you freaking imagine that? I mean, it's kind of crazy. By the way, this whole... that cash to liquidate? Oh, yeah. By the way, this whole scene of, like, asking the cops to come on a boat, the federal agents... Yeah. It's a very Wolf of Wall Street type of scene. Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, He did ask the uh, agents to take their shoes off, though, which is very funny. Very funny. Um, So he still owed Peter Schmidt $50,000. And because of this, Peter had been calling him. Peter Schmidt, as we know... Not a calm dude. So he's been harassing him, threatening to kill him and his family. So he's like, I'm actually a little scared of of Peter Schmidt. Oh, my God. So the FBI promised to protect the man and his family if they allowed to have. So the FBI promised to protect the man and his family if they allowed for their phone to be tapped. And, of course, they legally obtained a court order to do this as well. But but the man agreed. And Peter Schmidt did call. He called many times. And the FBI was able to trace all of those calls to various pay phones surrounding Miami International Airport. So now they are staking out the pay phones surrounding Miami International Airport. And eventually, who shows up? Peter Schmidt. When the FBI agents approached him, he ran and they had to chase him down. He was finally arrested and on his person was a cash belt that held $96,000. Oh my God. He did admit that he was with Aurora, but said he would never give up her location. And when he did not return, she would most likely kill herself. Oh my god. This is crazy. I this know. is like um um well, I think it's like worse than a lifetime movie or I should say better. I'm sorry, it's better than a lifetime movie. But it's definitely something that would be on there though. Yes. <laughs> It'd be something my mom would watch. Like in the 90s, <laughs> yeah. like a 90s lifetime movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. The car, I mean lifetime movies are so good. Some of them are excellent, yeah. Yeah. The car that he was driving was searched, and in it, a three fifty seven Magnum was found, and a receipt for a car repair shop. When the FBI visited the shop, the manager said he didn't know who the couple were, but he knew who the car belonged to, his friend. In fact, he had just done work on the car, which is why the receipt was there. The owner traveled a lot. And when he did, he sublet his apartment and his car. And he knew, of course, because it's his friend, where the apartment was. So they lucked out there. When the agents went to the address, they used a ruse. They pretended to be plumbers, saying they were there to fix a leak. 
So when Aurora opened the door, you know, she just saw a plumber saying that he needed to fix something. So she let him in. And then that's when she was arrested. They thought that she was going to fight like Peter did, but she did not. She actually was seemed relieved to be arrested. She even made a comment to the agents saying something to the effect of she was glad it was over. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, because that must be exhausting being on the run, you know. Um, She did try and start spinning the web immediately, though, that she had been innocent in everything and that Peter was the mastermind of it all. I don't think that she was in any way an innocent participant in this. I think that she was fully in it. Oh, she was in it to win it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, it's possible she had, you know, he might have made her you know, carry out certain things. But I I think that, yeah, she definitely had that involvement. Both Peter Schmidt and Aurora Martin are charged with the murder of Mark Van Beers. They are extradited back to Belgium, where they had to answer for their crimes. That was in 1999. Their trial did not begin until 2002, because it took the prosecution three years to build a case against them. During the trial, the truth is revealed. Peter and Aurora had met at a rock climbing class and ran into each other again afterwards at a casting call. The two were both very attractive, like aspiring actors, actresses, and they began dating. Peter had explained to her that he had money because of a life insurance policy. He admitted to her that his wife had died and he got the money. And he had implied that he had planned it all. That's crazy. This guy is just, (laughs) they both know exactly what to do. Well, I think that it's very interesting because he must have recognized something in her to feel comfortable enough to say that to her. That's true. Because you wouldn't say that to anybody. Right. And after he told Aurora that story, she became obsessed with the idea of getting money that easily. Well, yeah, it's kind of like um, like if a get rich quick scheme. Yeah, I mean, if you're able to do it, hey. No, if you're able to do it, don't do that. Don't. No, no, I'm saying. It, well, <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, obviously. No, no, I'm I'm trying to say like, I mean, they probably got a taste. She got a taste of it. Yes. Right. Like, the or lifestyle. I should say, they both did. And they came together to do this, to carry it out. That's what I'm saying. Right. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Sorry. No, just clarification. Clarification. <laughs> don't do that. Don't, don't, don't kill people for life insurance. When Aurora didn't shy away from the idea of it all, Peter began to plan another murder with her. Now, obviously, it would be obvious if this happened to Peter again. So they planned for it to happen to Aurora. They planned what they were going to do for months. She joined the matrimonial-oriented dating group, and that was when she met Mark. For an entire year, she faked the relationship with Mark, even convincing members of her family that she was involved with him. Don't forget, her family attended the wedding, and they had to kind of, like, put on this thing of, you know, we have money. What she had said to them was, like, don't embarrass me. And they kind of like had their stuff together. The only time Mark and Mark's family met Aurora's family was at the wedding. When, of course, everyone's in their wedding best. 
That's true. So all the while, she is in a relationship with Peter. And they're planning this in the background. I honestly just can't even believe people would do that. That is so sickening. It, it is. This poor, poor man who is so adorable, just an accountant looking to start a big family like the one he grew up in. And he was victimized by these animals. I feel so bad. Now, when they had gone to Corsica, Peter had planned with Aurora to get Mark on a secluded road at a specific time. When they left for their drive, Peter was waiting outside their hotel and followed them. Aurora was supposed to fake an illness to get Mark to pull over. And when she got out to pretend to vomit and Mark was kind of trying to help her, Peter parked behind them, snuck up on Mark, and began attacking him with a baseball bat, killing him. Then he roughed Aurora up to make it look like she was also in an accident, and it's why she didn't have any injuries, really. Um, Most of her injuries were sustained from trying to climb back up the small cliff embankment. And then they pushed the car off the cliff and watched it fall 750 feet. Wow. I mean, that's insane. I think the term diabolical lovers is exactly yeah. what they are. 100%. I don't, I don't even know how to put that into words. It's so sickening that they can, both of them can carry out for as long as they were. Yes. To gain the trust of everyone around them mm-hmm. and then do this. I agree. And by the way, I was right. They were tailed. You were. You were right. That's why I said, oh, we'll see. <laughs> But no, but seriously though, I, there's nobody worse. Well, are you ready to be shocked one more time? Okay. I'm bracing for this. All right, good. After the trial for the murder of Mark Van Beers, Aurora Martin and Peter Schmidt were found guilty by a jury. It took the jury only six hours to deliberate. Aurora was sentenced to 15 years. And Peter was sentenced to 20 years. Now, please know that Belgium does have life sentences. They have taken away the death penalty, but they could have been sentenced to life. They were sentenced to 15 and 20 years. However, they didn't serve that many years. They didn't even serve that many years combined. Aurora was released after five years in prison. She was 33. Peter was released after six years of prison. He was also 33. Once Peter was released from prison, the couple got back together. Their whereabouts are currently unknown. You gotta be kidding me. No. Really? We have no idea where they are. No. Okay. That's insane. I I find, though, that and, and once again, I'm not cultured, but I do find that there are some countries that do believe in a more of a rehabilitation process than just a full out sentence. Well, it is like sick that the in the American prison system, our, our focus on rehabilitation is, is non-existent, but they were like there is a possibility to sentence them to life in prison. But that happens here in the United States, too. And that happens in other places where 
people are the sometimes the sentences that come out of what people the crimes that people commit and the planning and the scheming involved it's like that's it it's just i don't think the sentencing itself is as shocking as the amount of time they served i i 100 agree with you i'm just saying this if i hit somebody with a baseball bat and killed them after striking them so many times and they died just that that act alone would probably get me 15 to 20 years. But it did get him 20 years. Right. But, right, I understand. Because, see, that's what's shocking is the fact that he only served six years. Correct. But I'm just saying, though, like, I'd probably stay in there. I'd probably get no parole, depending on how, you know, if it was planned or not. I'd probably get no parole. Wow. You know? You're upset about a sentence that you didn't you Well, didn't usually I'm, I'm always, no, well, no, 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 you know, I'm just, you know. It's just crazy to it's shocking, I think, and I think you are right. Shocking that they both served what together what eleven years? Yeah. Uh, that's what I meant. Like Aurora was sentenced to fifteen years. Combined they didn't even serve fifteen years. I would I would like to know why that is. I'm sure there was many factors involved I'm sure. in the in the But now you have the served. two of them who they plot and they scheme and they find ways to make money. And now we have no idea where they are. Yeah. And we don't know if they're, I mean, I wouldn't say that they're completely rehabilitated and they're not doing a scheme of some sort on some level somewhere. I would say they most likely are. Yeah. 100%. That's a good one, right? It is a good one. It is a good one. Are you impressed? Are you impressed that I kind of got a little bit? You know what? I just, I expected of you. You're just a very, you're like a detective, as as many of the listeners say. I know, but I'm not. I'm I'm not trying to pin myself with medals. I'm just saying I, <laughs> I I did get the whole tra- trailing thing. You did. You did. I was on and the life insurance and the life insurance policy. Okay, so before we end the show, there are just some patrons from Patreon that we do want to thank. These are our new patrons that are donating from the last episode to this episode. So first, I want to totally redeem myself and say Tiffany's name again. It's Tiffany Guitar. And I if I ever mispronounce your names, let me know and let me be on my redemption tour, please. Uh, Megan Woods upped her pledge to $5. Rachel Coco, Nina Wubrock, Nia Hoff, Camilla Hernandez, Jason Shipcott upped his pledge, Shia Williams, Jennifer Humphrey, Jacqueline Williams, Fasahai Makawana, Stephanie Dewey, and Kathy Fisher. Thank you guys so much for joining our Patreon page, and we hope you're enjoying all of the new episodes that we have up for you there. And uh, we'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs>